Welcome to The Branding Boardroom, the podcast where we discuss brand strategy and how it should be understood, formulated, and implemented by senior corporate decision makers. Our guests range from prominent CEOs to accomplished academics and thought leaders. But there's so much more. They're also interesting people. And on the show, you'll get to learn about their stories and about the advice that they give to the world's top companies. My name is Ivo Ganchev. I'm your host and a senior executive at Top Brand Union, a Chinese consultancy which publishes influential ranking tables in the branding industry. We also organize the annual China Brand Festival. And this year, it's taking place right here in Changsha, where our secretariat is located. Now follow me into the branding boardroom. Dr. Francesca Hanstein is an accomplished academic and consumer behavior consultant. Dr. Hanstein has over a decade of experience conducting high-level research at numerous institutions, having taught at the Shanghai University of Finance and Economics and at Xi'an Jiaotong Liverpool University. She's a respected authority on Chinese consumer preferences. Dr. Hanstein has led executive-level courses on various corporate programs such as the Siemens EMBA International Leadership and Finance Program. She has also served as a co-principal investigator and coordinator for several food consumption projects in Shanghai. Her academic articles have appeared in influential journals such as Micro and Macro Marketing, Globalization and Health, and the Journal of Cleaner Production. Dr. Hanstein is the author of an upcoming book which seeks to help Italian and European companies better understand Chinese consumers. Her new book is eagerly anticipated among the branding and marketing community. Welcome to the Branding Boardroom, Francesca. Your career has been full of diverse experiences spanning across academia and industry, where you've explored consumer behavior from a wide variety of perspectives. But before we dive deep into your current work and expertise, let's begin by talking a little bit about your early experiences. What was the beginning of your career like, and how did you become interested in consumer behavior? Uh, first of all, thank you, Eva, for, for the invitation. Um, this podcast. Uh, so, um, so let me start from from the from the last question. So, how I became interested in consumer behavior? I think it dates back to my uh, childhood uh, because I was exposed to different environments. So, I uh, I could observe and uh, and realize how people behave differently according to many factors. So, I traveled in many cities and a um, few countries when I was little. So, I was exposed also to different economic environments, and I, w- I was fascinated by it. You know, by see all the different behaviors of people, even people that grew up in the same environment. So. It was quite fascinating, but I mean, it was it was uh, of course when I studied uh, my master thesis and also during when I started my PhD that I could understand a little bit more about my uh, about these interests. And um, at that time, I started studying like consumer behavior in models. Uh, I was interested in food behaviors at the very beginning, so I was doing a master thesis, um, actually using some data, quantitative data. Perceptions of food trustability, which is, was a big topic. I realized how many models uh, were uh, there about like behaving and consumer behavior. How many factors were uh, involved, like from social demographics, uh, environment, economics. So it was very fascinating, and also try to build some model myself, and also to adjust or adding some variables here there to existing models. And, you know, the big question is also, do we behave uh, in a certain way uh, because of nature? So is genetics or is more like the environmental condition? Probably, of course, a good mix of them, uh, for sure. Um, so, yes, this is, uh, was my first, uh, the, the way I, I got interested in consumer behavior, reading a lot also about how attitudes uh, formation, perception toward things, how we change habits, also the other big, uh, how it's difficult and what are the triggers that cause like behavioral changes and uh, yes, all these aspects. 
so it was very fascinating by, by it. Was, it was a genuine, uh, pure interest because I really like to observe like different people and different behaviors. And uh, it's an interesting journey, I would say. So you mentioned your genuine curiosity and you've had this great academic background, but you're currently also um, the market research director for interactive market research which is an italian company and as the name of the company suggests this sounds like a great place to put your academic skills in practice so could you tell us a little bit more about the company and about the types of projects that you work on there uh, yes of course uh, yes as you said i in january a transition i transition career i from the academia to the private sector and uh, particularly i'm working in the market research industry which i think is a perfect fit for my my skills for the academic skills i have i think there there is no other job i could do right now and uh, so my company is a small Italian company. Uh, we are about like 20 people, uh, but we work with, um, I mean, with several brands, some big, I would, I would say some big, uh, big names. Uh, we work on different kinds of products. You know, we do research uh, in different sectors, like from electronics, uh, appliances, uh, food and beverages, uh, uh, healthcare, the travel industry. So really, the the expertise is quite uh, is quite uh, wide, I would say. And um, you know, we are local, but with a global mindset. In fact, we have uh, not just uh, Italian clients, uh, but also few international clients. Actually, a very uh, Chinese company that we are uh, big company. That we are uh, we have a. Um, Strong, uh, say strong relationship with them. We conducted several researches for them in these uh, these last years, and uh, I can also tell you that one of the maybe one of the features of uh, of the main features of my company is the flexibility. I think you know usually coming from the academia. Um, I, I, I studied also and from a business school, I, was, uh, I, I studied and read a lot about how business uh, works and about leadership theories or management theories. And just to make an example, for exa one of the one of the theory of leadership that this the skill, the three skills of leadership, uh, where usually companies should combine like three different three different kinds of skills, like from human, conceptual, and technical. And usually senior people are very good at conceptual skills, uh, like entry level junior people are more like you expect like. To, to be technical skills, especially the young people that know like many new tools uh, better than others, and mid senior level uh, they should be good like human and uh, but of course not, and others but mainly I mean this one. But I would say that one of the main distinctive uh, character of my company is uh, is that we are we, we do everything basically. So every people in the company should is uh, is responsible in, in a certain point and. You know, so when following a special as aspect of uh, of these various aspects, so it is very challenging at times, but also it's a it's also very interesting because you work with different people, you exchange, you learn new things anytime, and uh, like really like from top to bottom. So it's uh, it is I think it's it's. Uh, it's, it's, it's great. It is something that I really like about it. It sounds like a very rewarding experience. And you mentioned that you work on a lot of research projects, that you have a global mindset and provide services to a variety of companies. So I'm sure that you use a lot of different methods um, in your work. So perhaps you uh, might use quantitative or qualitative methods or some more specific methods as well. Um, would you share a little bit with our audience about the types of methods that you prefer to use for practical purposes and perhaps weigh some of the strengths and weaknesses of the different methods that you sure. use in your work? Uh, so yes, as a market research company, um, we are specialized in uh, online uh, online surveys, but um, so, so this is, was the beginning of the, the company. Especially at the beginning, they were very active in these type of surveys when they were starting you know, to be used a lot also by marketers. Um, but we use both like quality and quantitative uh, research, and I think, and this also, is it true for the academia for some study I conducted uh, during my research, I use like a mixed method research approach, approaches, so 
uh, a combination of quality and quantity um, and quantitative uh, methods. I think this combination would be, I think is the most uh, complete. Uh, of course, the, the, so the, 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 the quantity using quantitative data as the advantage that you can generalize the results as long as the sample as the sampling has been random, but of course you can have, uh, you can really collect a lot of data, uh, many, many data. You can, you have the possibility to market, to, to conduct like segmentation and uh, identify different targets. But at the same time, you do not go uh, in depth as instead you do the quality research because the quality research, you can focus on few people and really try to understand them uh, in a more like, uh, with more attention, you know, we, you understand how they think, uh, what are the preferences? What are the attitudes? So you can really go in depth. So usually we do we, uh, one of the way we could proceed is start, you know, to start from a quantity research to have a broader, you know, uh, vision of the situation of a given project, and then, uh, you know, for the most based on the insights we obtain from the quantity research, we uh, conduct, you know, some qualitative studies like focus groups in-depth interviews or other methods like that to better understand um, how people uh, think. So a combination would be ideal. So for the quantity, we use, you, you usually the, um, use like the traditional survey methods. So the UNA using genetic surveys, um, just to make uh, an example, or, and then of course with the data elaboration, a little bit more sophisticated analysis, like clustering to identify like different targets. And also for the quantities, uh, ethnographic studies, uh, in-home interviews, uh, focus groups, so there are plenty of tools. So since I, I arrived in January, I've been worked on several projects and, and I think I, uh, I had the chance to see a quite range, a good range of, uh, of projects. Um, another actually another uh, method that I am or like field I'm uh, I'm exploring right now uh, is the UX uh, UX research the user experience uh, research. So I think this is also very interesting. Also thinking about like the future uh, future projects and um, basically the, the goal is to understand how people interact with with an app uh, application of the phone or with a website, whether they can complete a task like from the beginning to the end, if there is any roadblocks. So I think this is very fascinating because it allows uh, to also to work with um, website or, or app developers and designers. So it's, uh, it's really cool. Uh, this also this uh, field of research. Uh, and they want like A-B testing or usability studies are two of the methods that are uh, most commonly used. That's a great overview for our audience. And I believe that uh, there is going to be a lot of takeaways there for them, especially if they're exploring different possibilities for research methods. Uh, but of course, so far we've spoken about research methods at the conceptual level. And when we think about companies and the way that they put research in practice, we also have to think about the extent to which they should rely on it or the types of decisions that it could help them make. So from a practical perspective, um, what, was your, what was your, would your take be on some of these things? And who do you think should be reading this research and uh, how should they take it into account when it comes to company management or product strategy at a more practical level? Of course. So usually let me explain the process that maybe can help, I think, to better understand how it works. So usually it works like this, like someone, well, depend, depending on the size of the company, can be like the, just the CEO in, in the case of small company, or maybe like the marketing director or the brand director or the pricing, anal pricing director. Um, they come to us with a research question. So they want to know something about a product. Like, for example, what, what is the best? Uh, I have like three, three communications. Uh, which one works best? So which one is more convincing for consumers, let's say. Uh, or um, if, if, if a company wants to launch, launch a new product, they come to us and say, so is, is this product good as it is? Uh, should we improve it? Uh, the technical features are okay. So they come with a general question. So the very uh, first work we do, and it's, I, I, what I learned in this month is the, a critical part, is to understand what they want and to translate their question into a project, into a proposal, a completed proposal, 
where um, you understand the objective, you try to um, you develop, like, um, you identify the target, identify the methodology you're going to use, um, the how it, and you try to be as specific as possible, as much as specific as possible, even, you know, at the proposal stage. And then the time and investment. And this sometimes also requires some back and forth with the client just to really understand what they want from, from, from you. Um, and so you, you, you come up with a proposal. And um, during, if, if, if then it might get approved or not, based of course on the time and investing, this is usually the investment, this is usually the biggest, uh, most important part. We start the field work, usually that can be quality or quantity or both, depending. So the, the time also, I've, one thing that I learned in, in market research, the timing is very strict, also comparing to the academia. So some projects you have to finish like within one, two weeks and uh, just it's, so fast-paced, really, especially when we work with the Chinese company, I have to say. But um, this is the way it is, and it's very exciting. Um, so we, we, we present the results, and, uh, of course, we make sure that, um, you know, all the process is clearly understood in all the steps. Uh, and uh, the other thing is that, of course, based on the type of company that approach us, um, we can scale somehow the, the let's say the complexity of the of the method we are going to propose them. It depends, you know, and of course there is so there is a lot of flexibility from our. Did I answer to your question? <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and it's also a great overview of the process as well. In case, uh, for example, somebody is um, just getting started and trying to understand how they should navigate this space. Um, so these companies that you work with, um, of course, they are of different uh, sizes and they operate on a different scale. But when you think about the way that they allocate resources, um, how much resources, how much time, money, human resources do you think um, a company should allocate to this type of market research? And of course, it might be difficult to specify numbers here, but if you think about, let's say, percentage of revenue or uh, part of their budget, uh, what advice would you give to companies? It depends on many factors. Um, of course, it depends on the, on the I think it, mainly in the company sector, and um, of course, there is not a unique answer. It also depends on the macroeconomic conditions, on the strategy, overall strategy of the company. But just to give you, you know, an idea, there are some companies, um, especially, for example, those that work in healthcare, uh, and some of them, of course, they are required by law to conduct, for example, clinical trials. And in this case, I think at least 20% of the budget or so, on, on average, uh, because you have to do clinical trials, of course, you're in healthcare. Um, I think the budget should could be quite high for companies uh, working in innovation technology, uh, where you really want to understand that your innovation or the innovation you are launching on the market is uh, valuable for your target. And uh, so you might want to conduct some preliminary research to understand better or to refine better, you know, the not maybe not just the technology, but also the way you communicate the technology. Then another sector could be like fast in the sector of fast fast moving consumer goods, where the competition is very high. I think it's also important five to fifty percent, maybe something like this, uh, depending on the market conditions, depending on the again on the competition, on the specific product you're going to uh, to, to to test. And then, of course, uh, I also think that in some, of course, the budget obviously varies from year to year, but um, if a company is launching like new products or want, wants to enter like new market, like um, in this case, you know, the budget could be higher at the beginning. Like uh, we, we got approached for a, from a Chinese company who is launching, launching some product in the European markets. And of course, in this case, you really want to understand because uh, maybe there are many bias, and so you have uh, cultural bias that affect the perception of the market um, of other countries. So it's important, it's very important to do some research in this sense. Also, I mean, of course, the other way around, there are some famous examples I can think about uh, a few years ago, uh, the Dolce & Gabbana brand, the Italian brand made that a mistake in communicating uh, with the Chinese market with a terrible effect on the brand reputation. So 
just because of a little bit of superficiality when approaching the market. So you really, in this case, I think market research is paramount. Yeah, these cases of miscommunication really exemplify the importance of market research and the way that it actually comes into play in practice. And when companies decide to dedicate a certain amount of resources um, and they... Uh, then move on to the stage of deciding whether to outsource the task of market research to a company like yours, perhaps, or to uh, hire people specifically, or to build an in-house team and do that. Um, what would you say are the type of situations where one would be better than the other? Um, and, and how would you think about this uh, this question in order to produce a better outcome for different types of companies? Yes, this is a very good question. Actually, some companies have uh, their in-house research team, but still they outsource some researches. So... Um, from my experience, uh, big companies follow like an hybrid approach. Uh, small companies are more likely to outsource, of course, because they don't have the internal resources. Um, but if you want, you know, from, to give you like a more comprehensive answer, um, there are, you know, some pros and cons uh, of each of the approach. So the advantages of having a, uh, the advantage of having an in-house uh, research team is that uh, people within the company have a deep understanding of the products, of the features, so they know of the goals of the company, so they know exactly what the senior executives want and. Um, so it can be easier and faster for them to understand the, 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 the goal of the research and the framework and um, putting it down. Some of the costs, some of the disadvantages is that overall uh, having a research team, it might be expensive. Uh, also because consider that you know, market research is not something that you need uh, uh, like uh, all the year around. There are some periods that maybe you need to conduct some research, so it depends on the projects you have. So it might be costly if you have, if to, you have to hire an entire research team. Um, it, the other thing is that there might be uh, a potential bias. Just exactly because the people are within the company, they maybe favor the results or they, may, they might be biased. For them, some things of their product is obvious. They know the brand very, very well because it's the brand they work for. Uh, so this might affect the results on the, the way they write the questionnaires, the, the, rate they, the, the way they conduct like the, the study, they interpret the results. So the bias is there. On the other side, uh, outsourcing, uh, uh, outsourcing the research. So asking like a market, an external market research company is asked to conduct the research. Um, has the advantage of being uh, cost-effective for the reasons I told before. So you're just paying for the project. You're not in charge of hiring the people of the company. Uh, so you just make that investment. And you and this is uh, com under control, quite often under control. Uh, then, of course, you have, the set, you have the guarantee that the people you're working with uh, have the expertise you need because of the because this is what they do, like from morning to evening, every day. So they are very, uh, very much experienced in this. They work with different methodologies. They work maybe with the competitors. So in this case, they have a broad vision, a broad spectrum of the of the overall situation. And uh, uh, in market research, you can find a lot of flexibility. So if you have to adjust the deadlines, adjust the adjust you know the, the budget or adjust the goal, changing a question, adding a question. If you have other people that are doing this, um, it's easier. I can make you an example. When you when we've been work, when we work for a client, it's very common that um, further requests arise while the study is ongoing. So we quickly need to adjust, we need to change something on the spot. And uh, you have to uh, have the right skills and the persons with the right skills and the, 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 the flexibility to do that. So, okay? so, the, so this is our job, so we, we are used to it. And uh, yes. Maybe, you know, the, on the other side, the, uh, the cons of outsourcing recent, uh, the research could be, in some cases, a limited uh, control uh, on, the, on the company. But I can tell you that, for example, as happened for us, we have, uh, with many clients, we have a long-term relationship. So we have been working for them um, for years. Uh, you know, I just started, but I know there are clients that are, they keep on coming. So 
you kind of build a personal relationship uh, with them and so you try to communicate well with the client um, and you know what they want. So overall, I think, um, you know, and so these are the general pros and cons of, of the two aspects. Then, of course, uh, the decision from the company side, uh, it uh, depends on many factors, like, of course, the budget, the time, the flexibility that uh, there are many, many factors, the macroeconomic conditions and uh, convenience, uh, practical convenience also. You know, sometimes it's easy to, to test a product within the company, if a big company among the employees. Uh, but of course, it's a little bit, uh, if you're super in a hurry, but of course, the results might be not so objective, of course. A lot of this makes uh, very good sense, especially if you think about it from the perspective of the client, from the perspective of the company. But when you think about it from the other side, from your perspective or from the perspective of a market research team that might also be in-house as well, um, what are some things that they could do to improve the likelihood that their research will actually feed into the decision-making of the company. We all know that research reports can contain a lot of technical language. We've all seen big companies sometimes fail to take into account certain rather basic uh, features of local markets. So how can you actually make sure that the decision-makers read carefully what you tell them and actually uh, take it into account? So first of all, let me start at go going back to the, to the beginning of the project, the research question they give you at the beginning is very important because it has to be very clear. You really have to understand what they want. And um, the other thing is that usually they are knowledgeable uh, of the of the of of course that they know about market research, marketing techniques. So they they understand the data, they understand the results. And what we usually do is that also when the research is ongoing, we keep on communicating with the, with the clients. And we do like uh, midterm or sometimes uh, the final presentation uh, with the report, the report, which of course we deliver them some documents with the results, but we also present the results to them during a conference call usually. And uh, this is a key, uh, key uh, part uh, because all the doubts, all the questions, all the things that are not clear, we explain them. And we want to make sure that everything is clear and that we uh, arrive with a clear answer. The other things that I might want to say is that um, sometimes it happens that um, there is not like a clear-cut direction, uh, for example. Which influencer is better at sponsoring this product? Maybe we identify two influencers. So in the end, the decision uh, might be also up to the client. So we give directions, uh, of course, suggesting what could be like the best marketing strategies or the best directions or what they should improve. But these are just general, very general suggestions. I can make you an example. Uh, a few months ago, uh, we were asked, uh, we, a uh, hearing aid company asked us to test like three different communications uh, in a European market. And uh, these communications were quite different from one from the other. One was like, uh, there was like a medical doctor sponsoring the problem, with like, putting her face on the advertising, uh, encouraging people to, to conduct a test, a hearing test. Another one uh, was like more based uh, on a peer effect. So there was like these elderly people telling him experience. And the other one was just a general communication. So our results actually indicated that uh, the winning, let's say the winning communication uh, was the one with the peer effect. But then the company um, decided uh, to went with the one, uh, with another one that was not, I mean, the results were not so terrible, of course, uh, but was not like, according to our results at least, the winning communication, the most effective communication. But they decided to go with the middle one that, were, uh, that show like uh, should a doctor presenting the approaches. Why this happened? This happened because of um, the brand, uh, because of, I mean, if our, our results impact the brand image or the brand uh, reputation too much, and the senior executive thinks that maybe this is not the case, they might of course decide to take another direction. So. This is uh, something that can uh, regularly happen. Another thing's very interesting thing is that some companies asked us, you know, on the base of the results, 
to give them directions. So what should we do? What is the best strategy to go? Other companies, companies they do not want absolutely hear that. We just give them the results. And this, the marketing team, their marketing team will decide what to do based on the results. So this is the, the idea. I hope I give you a, an answer to explain the situation. This is really a very, very useful way of, of putting it together. And you've spoken uh, a lot about the types of experiences you have in your work, and you're clearly very, very knowledgeable about the industry. But as we know, you've also had a fantastic um, list of personal achievements, and you've had a great career so far. So to some of our listeners who are trying to um, go to that next level and who are trying to further their professional development, um, let's talk a little bit about the factors that you think have led you to have this successful career. What do you think are some of the things that made you be so successful? Uh, well, thank you for this question. So I could, you know, I just transitioned, transitioned like from one job, from one sector to, to the other, which was very challenging. And I consider myself in the process of building a career. Um, but um, what I think helped me a lot during these years um, of is, you know, I, I tried to kept my mind uh, as open as possible uh, in terms like of new opportunities, of uh, new skills I could learn. Always, you know, try to be open to learn new things. Uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a strong supporter of uh, ongoing and continuing education. So whenever I can, you know, I try to learn something uh, new. It can be a skill, a software, and this is also, you know, a, a personal approach to life. And uh, probably, of, of course, you know, as I, as I said at the beginning, um, another factors that I think helped me a lot uh, was the uh, was that I was exposed to different cultural uh, backgrounds since I was a child. So. Uh, and also, I mean, the fact that I lived in China, in the States, uh, in Europe. So in this particular mom historical moment, of course, um, it's changed uh, my perspective. So I, I would maybe, you know, it's, it's quite common. Not, not always I've seen it here in Italy, not maybe these days, especially after the, the pandemic, although now it's, everything is kind of becoming to the normal, is to go to another culture and experience and so try to build your skills and your working skills in another cultural context. This is, I think, it's, uh, it's gorgeous. And uh, yes, um, this is um, one very important aspect. Um, the other thing is that maybe twice a year, or maybe at least, at least twice a year, try to get out from your comfort zone. And uh, we know, we all know uh, what are our limits, what are our fears. Put sometimes yourself, uh, get out from your comfort zone. And this could be done, I think, in a very different way, like professionally, I don't know, sign up for that conference, uh, do a public, uh, no, public speaking, uh, try to, or, yes, or uh, candidate yourself for that committee, uh, I don't know, sign up to the theater class. I don't know. I think everyone, each one of us has his own, like, uh, uh, yes, you, you know what I mean. I mean, so, so I think this, this might be helpful. And, uh, and of course, try to learn from other people. Um, yes, from your colleagues, young or older than you. So I think it's very, the intergenerational communication is very important. Um, especially, I have to say, in Italy, I have to admit, as in many other cultures, uh, you know, sometimes there is a little bit of pat pat there is a paternalistic culture. So um, this is something that, um, of course, um, it's a limit sometimes. So it's very important to listen to young people. Uh, yes, because we can really learn a lot from different generations and uh, without thinking, okay, we know everything. I've been through there, you know. This is the typical uh, phrase you hear, like sometimes from elderly people. At least, I mean, this is very true in Italy, maybe less in other contexts. But 
so yes, this is something that should be challenged. You spoke about the importance of um, of going through different experiences in different countries and cultures. You also spoke about the intergenerational gap. Um, and when you think about these things from a personal perspective, of course, they help you um, grow uh, in terms of your, your mindset. But when you think about them also from a market perspective, are there any similarities or differences that you've observed across consumers that come from different cultures or in different markets? Or are there any notable differences perhaps between uh, market segments from different generations or different cultures as well? Absolutely, yes. And, uh, you know, I studied, as you know, I studied a lot, a lot of Chinese consumers and um, there are huge differences. I experienced them myself at first hand. You lived in China, so you know what it means like experiencing that kind of development, economic development, especially I was there. I, I went to China, ten, when I arrived to China 10 years ago, uh, so 2013, and uh, the very first year it was like living in a lab. Uh, and uh, so, of course, you're surrounded by different trends and different cultures, so I say, wow. And uh, so at that time, actually, also my interest in consumer behavior really exploded because it was fantastic. Um, and I've seen like people changing from one year to the other, changing their tastes, changing their preferences. Uh, uh, and this is very interesting also because um, try to understand what are the factors that drive like these big ch and sudden changes. I think it's, it, it amazed me. Uh, I think that if we look like uh, at Inter, inter, at, at intergenerations, so like same generations within country and within also different cultures, we might also find um, some similarities. Um, of course, I mean, everything, young people is all about like the video cultures and fast cultures, like uh, in Eastern gratification, we have that. But it's not just, you know, the young generation, like those born, for me, young, like those born like 2000, but also after that, I can see also in children, like this behavior of instant gratifications and the video cultures and the, the digital transformation. So, um, so yes, probably there are some similarities uh, across like young, the young generation within countries but also uh, the same generation change, change a lot, I mean, from year to year, uh, you know, everywhere right now, because our changes are driven like by all, of course, all the artificial intelligence and innovations that we are surrounded by that affect like our tastes, the way we perceive colors, the way we perceive like, mm, I mean, our surrounding, what we consider beautiful and what we consider ugly or what we don't like, order and disorder. So because, of course, we now can, uh, an algorithm can, uh, you know, algorithms are used, you know, to, to, to define what is the best combinations of colors, what is the best combination of, uh, I don't know, clothes. And so it's, um, it changes very fast, sometimes too fast. These are fascinating observations, um, and they're definitely things to pay attention to as well. Um, and you mentioned, of course, um, your time here in China, and we have a large following um, in Beijing and other Chinese cities as well. Um, so I'm sure that our audience is very curious. What made you come to China in the first place? Um, and what was your what was your experience like? What types of things did you did you do here? And and how do you look back on it retrospectively? So China for me was a big change. I would say there is a before and after China. So to be honest, I arrived in China um, because of work and of personal reasons. Uh, so it was a sudden decision that was taking in within like few months. And um, so I started work, I arrived in Shanghai, and of course I was very curious at the beginning, but although of course at the beginning there is a huge cultural shock, there was. Um, I worked in the academia, uh, the Shanghai University of Finance and Economics for a um, few years, like from, from for six years in Shanghai. And then I also lived in Suzhou uh, for, unfortunately, a few months because then the COVID arrived and I got stuck in Italy. I, I've been working with the, 
um, with the Xi'an Zhaotong Liverpool University until like uh, last uh, July, July 2000, uh, 2002. I think about China every single day and about my, my life in China. Of course, it was, uh, I learned a lot from my students, I have to say. I had like many students from different, coming from different parts of China. Uh, from different backgrounds, uh, from different cultures. I also had many international students and I learned a lot from them. Um, I think I will always be thankful to them for what they taught me, uh, probably without knowing about, about China, their, their approach. Um, but also, you know, for, for I think I feel I feel very lucky because living uh, and experiencing first that such living in a country that the growth with with a, with this GDP uh, is a unique uh, unique experience I think in life because um, everything you know change so fast you can see people changing like their social status very fast and uh, they are optimistic about the future but then of, I mean this was like about 10 years ago, I would say. Then I know things changed a little bit, uh, but still uh, I learned a lot about um, about uh, about uh, Asia and, and China. And I hope to come back, maybe, I'm not sure to leave. To leave. Uh, right now, I mean, also for personal logistic issues, family issues, but uh, China, yes, I, I, I want to keep, you know, this, uh, this contact, like this uh, fil rouge with, uh, with, the, with that amazing country, with this amazing country that has been home for more than seven years, and this is the place also where my children were born, so it's a, it's a special attachment. Also, I studied Chinese, uh, and I loved the language and uh, everything, yes. What a transformative experience, and it's very interesting to actually hear how uh, China shaped and, and reshaped you over time, um, and how the things that you did here actually had an impact on on perhaps the way you think about certain things. Uh, but of course, you are making an impact on the world as well, and a large part of it is through your research and through your publications. You've uh, written um, many different types of publications. Some of them are non-academic, such as articles for magazines um, or newspapers. And some of them are, of course, um, academic and much more uh, rigorous in their approach and uh, much sort of uh, heavier, I would say, in terms of the type of, of reading that they are. Uh, but overall, when you think about the uh, types of publications that you're, you're putting out, what are the... Um, aims behind them what's the what's your target audience here what are you aiming to um achieve through these publications um and and uh, sort of who's your target here yes of course so first of all regarding my question before i got very emotional when i talk about china i have to say because it's uh, i still miss china a lot i hope to visit it soon but so, so this is what i um yes yeah, so just a little note about uh, my the question before uh so now regarding my publications of course the um, so from an academic perspective, uh, there is a certain approach you have to follow when you write an, an academic article. Uh, uh, this is your, you're doing research. So you have a certain, you make an hypothesis, a research hypothesis, uh, uh, that usually is supported with a strong theoretical framework. And then you try to validate that hypothesis, or maybe not validate it, with, uh, with data, with research data. So in this case, you know, I, I try the goal of academic publications is to add a little piece of knowledge to the ocean of, uh, I mean, um, especially in social sciences, of the things we know. And uh, so to help other researchers, right, because then you, you, you receive citations, you got cited, and you try to build up uh, a certain knowledge over a topic, like, for example, electronic waste. I, I wrote about electronic waste or collaborative consumption. Um, so electronic waste in the sense of recycling behavior. Sorry, just, just let me specify this. So always like topics that are uh, consumer related, of course, or consumption related. Um, so yes, this is the, the, the idea, and, and I like writing academic publications because uh, they are, there is a sort of order you have in mind, and a scientific order that like from, from the beginning, from you, it's a process, it's really a research process. 
from the beginning to the end. So you start, write the hypothesis, you look at the data, you analyze the data, and then you draw the conclusions. Did you confirm the hypothesis or not? Should you, should you review something? And so on. So these are the academic publications. Um, the other publications, it depends. You know, I, I'm, of course, you cannot, even when you write to a general public, uh, as an academic, as, as a former, but my mindset is like uh, the mindset of a researcher, also for the job I still do, you cannot really give up to a research approach. So you want to support your ideas with data, with, um, yes, with, 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 with research, with opinions, with facts that support your opinion. And it, so you try to build a story um, that, of course, makes sense and that can offer maybe a different perspective, okay, a different perspective. Um, and usually I do just to build the knowledge over a certain topic, like in, in the case of Chinese consumers uh, so or, or other types of consumers. So, of course, the audience is broader. I try to be to maybe not to be too technical when... Um, you know, explaining the results and uh, yes. So also, actually, also in the in the academia, you say that if you when you have your research question or your re and your results, uh, if you are able to explain it to your granny, uh, to your grandmother, uh, then uh, you you know it, it's okay. Or to a child also, sorry, or to a child, uh, it works. It means that uh, you are using, you are communicating in the right way. And sometimes this is also an exercise. Not because, you know, of course, this is a bias we have because clarity in communication is key. Otherwise, there is miscommunication, but this is through the other side, especially if, I mean, if I have another person talking about something that I don't know anything about, of course, you know, the, the, I expect, or I, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it would be great if I can understand it in plain way, you know, so it's, uh, it's clear, it's clear the, the, the goal should be as clear as possible. You mentioned an excellent point about clarity and communication, and it actually gives me a great opportunity to put you on the spot and to try and think about a very exciting uh, topic that has to do with your current work. As you told me before uh, our conversation, you're currently working on a new book, which I'm sure would be excellent, and I'm sure it would be of great interest to our audience. So um, given that we have a lot of listeners, uh, both in China and outside, um, how could you introduce your current book to them, and how could you explain to them um, the idea of the book and its main significance? So it's a book uh, talking about uh, Chinese consumers nowadays. So the goal is to, um, to give my audience a picture, a photography, uh, a screenshot, or let's say, of what cons Chinese consumers are right now um, and what are their behaviors in certain sectors. Like uh, each chapter of the book is dedicated to a specific um, consumer um, area, like uh, food and beverages, uh, beauty and cosmetics, uh, uh, free time, um, including, for example, traveling, tourism, uh, fashion, of course. Um, so, um, yes, so these are the, 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 the topics. And the goal um, or, or, or the audience I have in mind uh, is, uh, um, I mean, it's not just one. So from one side, I'd like to, um, to talk to those people that are interested in learning more about uh, how Chinese consumers behave. Um, for personal reasons, like for students, that could be like students, university students, or people that would like to travel, young people that want to go to China for a certain period of their life, and uh, and so on. On the other side, uh, I would like to, I'm trying to talk with uh, those companies that have not approached the Chinese market yet, and uh, so that would like to try uh, to reach like certain consumer areas, so to give them an idea of uh, what Chinese consumers are. And to be honest, I've noticed that uh, in Italy, especially probably in the area that I live here, sometimes there are some misconceptions uh, still about uh, um, Chinese consumers in China, just because people do not know. It's, it's a matter of access to different information. And uh, of course, sometimes we access to the information we are interested or passionate about. 
So I'm trying, you know, I hope also to present the book here in Italy, here and there, and to increase the curiosity, at least of some people, of what is happening in China right now. Um, because sometimes I, I make, like, while I was writing the book, I made, like, this comparison, if, if helpful. Um, I think that some Chinese, Chinese people that live here could be compared to the... Um, to some Italian-American that are living in the States uh, that are still like very traditional, very old, uh, and uh, they have a certain, per- so, so they have a different perceptions of the Chinese that are currently living, uh, let's say, in, in the modern China, I would say, especially because many of them have not come back for a long time, uh, and so on. So the, the, the perceptions of the Italian people of China is surely influenced by like this group of Chinese we, we see here, although of course we, we see some, some changes as well. But um, I think there is, there, there is room for understanding more and for um, try to fight those stereotypes that uh, sometimes, not always, uh, but are still uh, on place, I think. That's a fascinating comparison, and there's definitely a lot of cross-cultural parallels that I think uh, more people should really think about. So you're making an excellent point there. Um, But when you think about it from a more practical, hands-on perspective, um, if... um, you, if you would be talking to, let's say, companies that haven't entered China yet or companies that are there but um, are thinking of ways to adjust their strategy, um, what would you say are some of the main uh, challenges and some of the main opportunities for Italian companies in the Chinese market and perhaps even for European companies more broadly as well? So, so it's different. The context is very different from a from few years ago. Um, so uh, nowadays there are more... Uh, so the, the companies that move to China must be, I think, like more equipped than before. Uh, so um, some sectors are still, uh, I think, offer opportunities, especially in, uh, I think, in the fast-moving and consumer good industry, in the beauty industry, home furnishing, uh, dec- uh, tourism, home decor, and like these uh, consumer, like uh, consumer products, fashion industry. But what is certain is that you have to offer nowadays a premium, premium product to Chinese people and you have to demonstrate to be able to understand them, to talk to them. So, we, I mean, watch out is, uh, you know, one of the main aspects that, um, I mean, for people that study China, it has become, you know, something, you, you know, perfectly what, is it, what, what it is and we talk about this often. But maybe it's not so obvious for other um, I mean, f- f- for other companies trying to export their goods in China. The, I think that the biggest challenge nowadays, especially if you go, if you, fa- if you go digital and you must go digital nowadays, uh, is to capture the attention of, uh, of some segments of consumers. So in this case, for example, doing market research is extremely important because it's better to know in advance which target you want to reach and how. Um, so that you know exactly where to go. Uh, And, of course, you have to compete with many local brands. So uh, if you do not capture the attention of uh, the the consumers or the statesmen, your interest in in a short amount of time, uh, the risk of uh, not attracting their attention may be higher. So there is also, this is a challenge. The other thing is that to try to communicate with them, sometimes also adjusting your brand name. So, for example, if you have, there are some companies here in Italy, some, some names are easy to pronounce also in Chinese, others are extremely difficult. So in that case, you might think of changing your name or adjusting. Although, you know, the most traditional companies are not willing to go through these types of changes, but uh, we have to admit that as for us, it's difficult to pronounce, you know, some Chinese names to make mistakes, is of course uh, through the opposite. So if you have a, I don't know, uh, I, I don't want to make uh, too many examples here, but if your name is not even readable by, it's more the, the cognitive effort they have to, 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 to know, to do for memorizing it or for, for pronouncing. So it's, it's, you can be easily um, forgotten. This is uh, very, very insightful and practical, and, and you're truly an expert, um, uh, one of the leading global experts on Chinese consumers today. So um, I'd like to, of course, take that opportunity and ask you one or two uh, follow-up questions on that. If you think about um, 
Chinese consumers, from your perspective and, and expertise, what do you think are the key characteristics that, uh, let's say, an international company, whether Western or from another uh, region, uh, should keep in mind when they're thinking about their product design, their marketing, their brand strategy? What are the important things to know about the Chinese consumer today? Uh, so depends on the you know this is on the target you want to to reach depends on the types of products but um, I mean there are there are many many aspects uh, I think that doing a good market research here would be extremely helpful um, but uh, so recently of course as I mentioned the Guochao element is important. Uh, so a mix, offering them a mix of uh, tradition and innovation um, at the same time. And this is uh, probably not easy to do, but very important. And in one of my paper, I, I claim that, uh, for example, the success of uh, some Swiss, uh, Swiss, Swiss, Swiss brands in China is because they, they have highly innovative product or premium product if you think about chocolate or watches or air purifiers even. But at the same time, I mean, they, are, they, they have like the tradition, they also the, their own tradition, so then they can communicate this. So build your story. And uh, so the storytelling is, is a, as a marketing strategy is extremely, also is another aspect, paramount aspect, so companies should, should be, European or Western companies should be able to, to, should work more, should work a lot on the storytelling, trying to build a bridge between uh, us and them, which I, I hope, you know, I, I really, I believe like in these bridges across cultures that still keep the channel, communication channels open and, uh, and favor like mutual understanding, so I think this is very important. And on another side, I can tell you that consumers, especially families or young adults, are very practical. So uh, your product must be really sold, respond to a need, which is obvious. I mean, when, when you're in consumer, needs are <laughs> less class number one, consumer needs. But it's really important. How can you make their life easier with your product? And we can see here, so there are many Chinese products that got imported here that, that actually they, they try always to respond to needs. So there are now some, you know, the, the Alibaba is here. So if you look also at how the Chinese communicate their products, the communication is also always uh, focused on, uh, at least for, for some, of course in some sectors, for some consumer goods, how to solve a product, how can I make your life easier and more practical. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's interesting because uh, too much practicality um, when Chinese companies are trying to export their products here, it's not sometimes, we are not ready, you know, sometimes in Italy to be too practical or, we, we, they have more needs than we have. I think, well, Chinese consumers have more needs than Western people have. We are more traditional, we're slow, you know, we got things to, so. While, while uh, in China, it's, uh, they, they get very excited if you can solve, uh, solve a problem for them. I think about like for, for the technology products especially. And um, the other thing is that Chinese consumers are at the, at, in, the, in the healthcare or beauty sector now uh, the, the, also, uh, the supplements are very like vitamins and uh, su supplements. It's, it's a very uh, it's, it's, it's a prominent uh, and growing field. Uh, they look at data, so it's very important to support. If you're going to export like these types of products, they want to have the results. So you have to tell them the results. You have to be willing to share the research data, the the, the technical aspects, the ingredients. So they are very attentive. They are, I think, they are attentive consumers, especially to be honest, because they experience in China some fraud. I mean, fraud and. Uh, uh, problems related like to security, food security, and safety, uh, hazardous product safety, they, they know it very well now in, I mean, in China. They experience, obviously, in a market that grow, I mean, whose economy grow at a certain level, of course. I mean, the safety hazards and happens. So since they know that, they are very careful about these aspects, and they know how to look for the information. So these are all aspects you should pay important, uh, should pay attention to, and uh, moving to China. These are really fantastic insights and they're very, very 
practical and hopefully um, some uh, members of our audience are going to really make use of them if they're if they're looking actively into the into entering the Chinese market. Um, and as we approach now um, almost the end of our conversation, let's think a little bit um, about the future, about ongoing trends in consumer behavior or, or branding at large. What do you think are some of the um, big emerging trends or challenges that you foresee in the in the field of branding? What are perhaps some of the skills that uh, marketers uh, and researchers need to learn or some of the strategic considerations that you think are going uh, are going to be essential in the next five to ten years so what's your take on the future of consumer behavior marketing and branding uh, yes well this is a very demanding question um, so I there are many 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 ways to answer it so from one side i still believe that um you know market research uh, approaches even the traditional ones uh can still stay uh, remain alive despite all the artificial intelligence transformation we are going through uh, although, of course, there are new challenges uh, that are emerging. So marketers, for sure, they have to adapt to these evolving uh, digital uh, technologies by, um, you know, learning how to use like new platforms, uh, um, learning how to perhaps include in their uh, insights, in their methodology also, um, tools coming from the artificial intelligence uh, and also regarding the social media social media nowadays re require like a continuing monitoring so especially I can tell this to young people also I have a co I mean just just I have colleagues that, that uh, worked and in, in this uh, in this sector so you cannot just, if you take, you know, a social media marketing uh, course or master nowadays, uh, you have to know that the skill you're going to learn during the course probably won't be the, the, the skills that you need when they finish. The, and it's hard to accept this, but uh, you have to keep on uh, understanding, you know, what, uh, the, what are the trends. So probably as a professional, you might want really to specialize into something and be become an expert into something very specific uh, and to learn uh, how to use, uh, you know, the new tools and uh, make yourself like, uh, let's say, a middleman, an intermediary, uh, you know, between the like, co companies or traditional brands company and uh, uh, the new technologies and new people. Uh, so this is, of course, uh, important. Then, uh, I mean, also, we have to the sustainability issues, and uh, you know, the, the consumers are paying more and more attention to sustainable issues, to environment. They they are willing. Many are willing to pay an extra price for products that are certified um, for the environment, that are sustainable. And this is true also in China, by the way. Still, you know, an emerging trend. Uh, but it's important and uh, so companies for example are um, certifying themselves with uh, international uh, standards uh, certification standards we are also we're also considering these uh, interactive market research um, so this is very important uh, consumers are becoming more and more sophisticated so it's very important to work on brand reputation and the brand uh, perception. So monitoring, because you know, the, the changes, of course, can happen very, very fast. And uh, you know, small mistakes can become viral uh, in a few, few hours, maybe. And this can have a huge impact on, on this. So probably also a risk uh, manager management uh, teams that is able to respond like to these sudden cha challenges might be also um, desired uh, nowadays. And uh, yeah, so I think, uh, uh, or maybe you know the different ways uh, we, we look for information. So we look for videos, we look for voices. So. A new these new trends to explore. So make sure your companies can be I don't know, you can found your company also through images, voices, so cure the brand 
uh, your, your brand communication as much as you can and pay attention to the details. Uh, yes, and then for the for the rest, we'll see. Of course, we the the the, 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 the classical apps, the digital marketing. Uh, it's changing our lives every day. So. Although, you know, of course, the offline strategies uh, should not be completely abandoned, absolutely not. I think that uh, many consumers, uh, at least from, from my last, latest research also in China, are still pay attention to offline, um, traditional offline settings, and they like to do that. So it should be a good mixture of them. That's really an excellent checklist that I think every company should uh, should take note of, and they should really follow up on on all of these uh, things that are going to be that are currently changing and that are going to be influencing the future of of branding. Um, but of course, as we know, some of our listeners are executives; they're busy people, and um, they don't have the time to go through the whole list. So, if you had just one minute to talk to the world's top CEOs and tell them your most essential message. What would it be? Oh, this is a uh, challenging question. Well, I can. Um, I mean, one thing that I can tell tell also from my experience uh, of the Shanghai Liverpool University, I was working in a business school. Um, maybe one thing that CEOs nowadays should do is always to look for a dialogue with uh, young people, with students, maybe with business schools, and again, you know, try to build this intergenerational bridge. Um, I think from, from my experience at XJTLU, but also in general, in general if uh, companies can communicate with universities <coughs> or, you know, professional institutions or, or you know, other um, learning centers, I think this would be great. So try to, uh, I don't know, build workshops, uh, invite like experts, give lectures to students. I think that also because... From one side, I think uh, young people need this to understand how the real world works. But also, CEO uh, might find, uh, might gain you know, some inspiring insights from fresh minds. And uh, I think this, uh, this could be... I mean, so also look, try to establish more collaboration between the academia and the, and the private, uh, private sector. Uh, yes, I think this. Uh, for, we used to do this a lot at XJTLU. I know, of course, some business schools do it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of uh, daily lives. But uh, I hope this could become like broader also in other like public universities or uh, other, other other universities in many sectors. You know, to really to build a um, solid bridge with uh, practitioners like practitioners and young students. That's truly a future-oriented vision and a tip that every CEO should take into account. Francesca, your insights are a true treasure trove that the branding industry uh, should definitely uh, stay tuned on and pay attention to. And finally, before I let you go, are we going to see you back in China soon? I'm sure that our audience is looking forward to meeting you. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, still cannot can tell, but yes, I'm, I'm working on it, let's say. Excellent. Well, we hope to see you here soon. And thank you very much for being with us on the Branding Boardroom. Thank you. Thank you, Ivo, for the invitation.